This week's portion is a double portion. And again, I'm going to always assume that some people might not be oriented to the weekly cycle. So I'll just stay, say a couple of words uh, called Acharemot and Kedoshim. Acharemot is chapters 16 and 17 and 18 of Leviticus. And Kedoshim is chapters 19 and 20. Um, or does it go only at 21? Let's see. Uh, no, just 19 and 20. And they're paired together, as I said last week, they're paired together along with several other partner Torah portions during years when it's not a leap year. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> during years when it's not a leap year. Uh, because when it's a Jewish leap year, a whole, I've got something in my throat, excuse me. <clears throat> when it's a Jewish leap year, a whole month gets added to the Jewish calendar. And then these double portions are broken out. And so last year it was leap year, we read them singly, but this year we're reading them doubly. So that's why it's called Acharimot and Kedoshim this week. And there's much to focus on in these parshas, but I am almost always drawn to, of course, the uh, chapter 19 of Kedoshim, specifically verse 18, which is, Vahavta l'reacha kamocha, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I mean, why not? Once a year, let's just you know, and any and any other day or time to focus on this section of the Torah portion. So I want to tell you a little about chapter 19, and then I actually don't want to focus on love your neighbors yourself, but I want to focus on a verse that comes directly before it, which again, we've studied together, but bears repeating forever. Um, and I will get to that shortly. This Parsha is called Kedoshim, because kadoshi means holy in the plural, because the parsha begins, Atem tiyuk toshim, you shall be holy, for I, yod source of life, your God, am holy. So I always spend a lot of time, especially with the Bar Bat Mitzvah kids, um, talking about what's this word holy? And I don't want to focus much time on that, today, but we throw it around a lot. The word kadosh is a word that people who only know base, some basic Hebrew words are going to know because kaddish is something we recite that comes from the word for holiness. Kiddush. Gwen? You froze for a moment. Oh, really? Okay. Um, I'm back. Did you miss anything? That I said? Okay. Um, Kaddish, when we recite the mourner's Kaddish, that comes from Kadosh. When we recite the Kiddush over the wine on uh, holidays and Friday nights, that's um, from the word holy. And uh, the Beit HaMikdash, the temple, was the holy temple, Mikdash. So it's one of the central Hebrew words. 
And so the goal that has been expressed, the, 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 the purpose that has been expressed for us in the Torah over and over again at Mount Sinai and here again and many other places in the Torah, is that somehow we're supposed to become a holy people. The way we become a holy people is by fulfilling the mitzvot, the commandments. And the theme of holiness is so central to chapter 19 of, um, of um, Leviticus that it's known as the holiness code. And second, not even, you could say parallels the Ten Commandments in its importance in Jewish uh, thought and in the centerpiece of Jewish moral uh, um, imperatives. So, with that said, I'm going to focus just on a little bit of it. And I'd like Gwen to share the screen and show you a couple of verses. About to do it. Things working at your end, Gwen? Yep. Oh, okay. It just didn't want, wanted to hide. Okay. You can see it now, yes? Only that says Gwen Tapper has started screen sharing. There we go. Okay. All right, everybody. So the first 18 verses of this chapter are all kinds of commandments between oneself and other people. <clears throat> um, I'll just review them quickly for you. For example, honor your mother and father gets repeated. Um, when you reap the harvest of the land, you have to leave the edges of the fields for the poor and the stranger. You can't steal, you can't um, deal deceitfully with one another. You shouldn't spread rumors or slander anyone. You shouldn't defraud your fellow. You shouldn't um, uh, cheat your laborers. You have to pay them what they're owed. You should not insult the deaf or place a stumbling block before the blind, which is understood to be do not, um, you know, insulting the deaf means that uh, they can't hear you, right? Putting a stumbling block before the blind means they don't know who put the stumbling block there. This isn't about, um, this is about correct behavior, no matter whether you're being perceived or not as doing it. It's not about what you can get away with, with other people. And then it says, as we get closer to this climax, be fair in all judgment. Don't um, pervert justice in favor of the rich, nor pervert justice in favor of the poor. Um, uh, and then do not stand idly by the blood of your neighbor, which is, comes to understand that, uh, and we're not looking at that verse either, but that's one of the most powerful verses. Jewish tradition interprets that as, there are no innocent bystanders, right? If, um, if you have an opportunity to help and you don't, you are partially liable. 
you're not guilty, but you're responsible. <clears throat> the way uh, Abraham Joshua Heschel said it is that in a free society, some are guilty, all are responsible, which sums up this idea of Kedoshim perfectly because the goal of Kedoshim is to create a holy community. There's no such thing as a per as a someone who them they alone are a saint because holiness is a an, is a characteristic that manifests here and the goal is in the interactions between everyone. That's where a holy society will manifest. And again, I'll say my understanding of holiness is that you create a vessel in which you can sense the presence of the divine and if you don't treat others as having been created in the divine image, then there's no opportunity for the divine presence to be perceived because you're not behaving in a way that allows it to be perceived. Again, I'll share a very famous Hasidic teaching um, that many of you've heard before, which is that um, the Kutzker Rebbe asked his students, he was a 19th century Hasidic leader, he asked his students, where do we find God? And his students say, um, oh, hold on a second. Uh, his, his students say, uh, well, doesn't it say the whole earth is filled with God's glory? Mm. Which is to say that in human affairs, God can be absent, right? The presence of God can be absent in human affairs. Even if the glory of nature uh, testifies to the presence of the infinite every moment of every every of creation, here in the world of moral behavior that humans occupy, we have the capacity to uh, to um, eject the presence of God, and we know that whenever we see any aspect of cruelty between human beings, dehumanization, and um, uh, I don't need to go on. Pauline just, chat, just put in, God is in the in-between, what occurs between us. In, in terms of being a holy community, that's where in human terms, uh, oh look, Joshua put in that ego stands for edging God out. Thank you, Joshua. I'm gonna remember that. Oh, and who told me yesterday, forgive me. Oh, it was Marty Klein. He was saying the difference between illness and wellness is illness has an I in it and wellness has a we in it. I thought, oh, that's a good one too. I'm gonna to remember that one too. Same word, just change the letters around. I love playing with words. Okay, so, so we are looking at the situation where it's very clear that for holiness to reside in human community, we have to let God in. And the commandments in this portion are all about how we treat one another so that the divine presence can be felt. And again, we don't know what that, we can't, we can't package that, but we know it when we're feeling it. And uh, so then we get to the climax of the portion which are these two verses on your screen. Lotisna et achicha bilvavecha. Do not hate your fellow achicha, literally brother, but 
your fellow, your kin, your, your bro, <laughs> in your heart. Rather, hocheach tochiach et amitecha. Rebuke. Yes, rebuke your fellow. Velo tisa alavche. That you not bear sin because of him. We'll talk about that a lot in the next little while. Then it says, Lotikom velotitor et bnei amecha. Do not take vengeance, nor bear a grudge, or as our translation says, retain anger against bnei amecha, your kin, your people. That's what that means. The sons of your kinspeople is very literal um, against your people. But rather, ve'ahavta l'reyecha kamocha. Be loving to your neighbor as one like yourself. I am yod Vavhe. This is just one of the top 10 passages in the Torah, so I never want to skip it when we come to it in its annual um, cycle. So the first thing, again, I want to say to frame this is that it's crystal clear. I think it's almost, it's irrefutable from the way this text is structured, that loving your neighbor as yourself is not a feeling. It's not the feeling of love. It is loving behaviors. These are because it is the climax of 18 verses of what are considered to be behaviors that show love whether it's making sure the poor have enough to eat, making sure you don't take advantage of someone who doesn't know better or who can't see or can't hear, or in some way is uh, unable to take care, uh, that you don't, sh that fairness, it's fairness regardless of the station of the person you're dealing with is a kind of loving behavior. So even though many years when we get to this portion, we spend a lot of time focusing on the phrase, love your neighbor as yourself. And every level that that um, phrase exists on, because, and just to, just to sort of flag that, you know, from the mystical level, means love your neighbor as yourself because your neighbor is yourself, right? Where is this? The, the illusion of separateness, it doesn't exist. And so you can take this on to any level of experience. But the plain meaning of the text here, to me, pretty clearly is, these are the loving behaviors that we need to engage in to fulfill the directive of creating holiness in our interactions. So it would seem to me so, so with that all said, does anyone have any questions or comments that you want to uh, express right now? So I'll, I'll, I'll continue, I'll continue. <clears throat> so I never get tired of reflecting on what it means to rebuke someone. Rebuke, tochiach, might be translated also as admonish, or in more than one word, point out 
their negative behaviors. That's what it means. You need to, to be loving to someone you care for. You need to be figure out, you, you must point out their, their negative behaviors, their wrong directions, their places where they might not know what they're doing and you want to try to get, help them see what their behavior is. And the Hebrew word, hocheach, tochiach, uh, it's repeated twice. Hocheach means to rebuke, reprove, admonish. That's what it means. Um, uh, it can also mean scold, but we don't have to, as you'll see, how can scolding someone, we ha then have to ask ourselves the question, how can scolding someone be an expression of loving your neighbor as yourself? So this verse gets worked over profoundly by the Talmud and by later thinkers right up to the present day, because it's such a central and challenging aspect of friendship, of real friendship of real family, of real partnership, where you don't skate, you're not just skating by each other all day, trying not to make waves, right? Um, that's one level of relating, but if that's all you do, it, it's shallow, it's sad, it's not intimate, it's not real uh, in the way most of us are looking to be real and also to have the people who love us be real with us. So the whole verse, 17, is connected. And you must rebuke your neighbor. Otherwise, look at the first half of the verse, you might hate them in your heart. Right? Don't hate them in your heart. Don't go around stewing that someone you love is behaving like an idiot. Find a way to tell them and do it in a way that it's an expression of love. Um, oh, I see two participants raised hands. Gwen, you're muted. Yes, I can't raise my hand because I'm muting it. I just wanted to say the Derek, um, the Maharal in his book, Derek Akaim, um, which I learned uh, talks about um, that to rebuke somebody you don't know, you first have to understand completely where they're coming from. You have to know, you have to get to know them before you can rebuke them. Exactly. A, a good answer. And can you uh, note who else is raising hands, Gwen? Yep, Meg and Amy. Great. Meg. Thank you. It seems the way the way I'm reading it is that it's related to what you said earlier that you know if, if something happens you can't be an innocent bystander you are accountable exactly so in other words when it, when they say that you not bear sin because of him if if the if you don't give that constructive criticism i'll call rebuking constructive criticism oh i like that that's a great okay. phrase so if you don't give that constructive criticism they may do something egregious, you know, and then you 
are bearing the sin because you were an innocent bystander. You didn't do something to try to correct what you saw as, and give constructive criticism and help that person. So that's how I understand um, uh, you know, those three lines. You don't hate them, you wanna love them and you wanna help them, therefore you give the constructive criticism so you won't have the, bear the sin of being an innocent bystander if they do something bad. Uh, that's right. Um, uh, if you do not find a way to try to intervene, you are considered partially responsible. That's intense, isn't it? Uh, yeah. <laughs> that, that's what a holy community is expected to do. And I think we should think of community in a very um, uh, um, flexible way. A community of two, a community of a family uh, group, a community of a bunch of friends, a community of, you know, it's like, uh, so it can, you can apply this to whatever you're thinking of as your community. Oh, lots of hands. Gwen, would you keep recognizing people, please? Yep, Amy's next. Okay, uh, it's actually Bob. Um, Rabbi, I always had problems with the translation of you should love your neighbor like yourself because, wait, who do I love like myself? Maybe my wife, maybe my children, but my neighbor who I see three, four times a year, it makes no sense to love him like myself. On the other hand, if you translate the as you should love your neighbor because he is like you, he's just another human being like you are going through the same trials and tribulations that you do, that makes a lot more sense to me. Thank you, Bob. And that's legitimate translation, which you just gave, because the Hebrew is ambiguous to say, no, what's What's the word for multiple meanings, not just ambi, right? Uh, it's multiguous um, because it bears, all, the word kamocha can be read all kinds of ways, like yourself, as yourself, is yourself. But I also want to add, Bob, that uh, again, I think it's important not to confuse um, uh, the love that is eros, that is the, the feeling that we have towards certain people in our lives, with the love that is the love of, of how we behave towards other human beings, just like you said. And I think it's pretty clear, you know, Hebrew has also a lot of, um, ahavta can mean a lot of things to love. Uh, in this case, based on the context, it seems to be about your be loving behaviors. And yes, if you see the other person as a human being like yourself, that can solve that difficulty. Thank you. Who's next? Sam. Oh, um, two things. One, last week you said, um, you might be getting to this later or something, I don't know. But last week you said with the Tamei thing, when it says Tamei twice, that yeah. means there's a double meaning. Is there the same thing going on with rebuke? Yeah. And first, and also, sorry if I missed something earlier, but you are not to hate your brother in your heart. Does that... Could that mean both like a sense of like, don't hate your brother, but also a, if you have issues with your brother, don't keep it bottled in? 
Um, thank you, Sam. You're doing a great reading of this. Yes, first of all, in biblical Hebrew, when a phrase gets repeated, it's, it means that it's emphatic. So tame tame means impure, impure, or uh, last week. And here, hocheach, hocheach, rebuke. Yes, rebuke. It's a, in, the, in just plain biblical Hebrew, it means em emphasis. But in Hebrew, in, in interpretation of the Hebrew, why does it say it twice? And I'm actually going to share with you, I think, I think I have a couple of teachings that explore that. But keep in mind that that repetition is an, uh, isn't, is an opportunity for creative interpretation, not for, a, um, not for the final word. And it just pre creates this beautiful opening to, to talk about what is being emphasized here. And yes, the other thing you said, Sam, about don't, just don't hate your brother. Absolutely. Um, hate your fellow. But it seems like, the, again, the primary meaning in this case is don't allow that hatred to boil up, to build up in you. Rather, you must find a way to tell them what's bugging you and uh, so that you don't carry that around and just spend all your time stewing and hating that person for their behavior. Thanks. Great point, Sam. Who's next? Grace. Oh, hi. Thank you, Gwen. Thank you, Rabbi. Um, I was about to ask for examples of behaviors that are rebukable. And I still would like to um, know what people think about that. But then I found one for myself that um, I had a couple of uh, friends who treated um, the waitresses and waiters in restaurant with such disdain and, you know, like they were just dirt servants. It was really embarrassing to be with them. So I actually did have to, at that point, comment on that. And, um, you know, why they did it is kind of irrelevant. They were either impatient or, you know, they didn't get what they wanted and they thought they deserved better or whatever it was. So that was one example that I thought of. And it's pretty small in terms of, you know, horrible behavior, the horrible behaviors that one can do. But I'm kind of wondering if anybody else has any examples of things that they have had to, um, I like what Meg said about constructive criticism, they've had to um, uh, rebuke or mm -hmm. make comments about or try to bring to other people's awarenesses. So anybody who wants Thank to you. chime in, I thanks. Yeah, rather than chime in with your hand, if you want to respond to Blaze's question, put that in the chat feed, and then we'll be able to see them in a little later in the in the class, okay? Uh, who's next? Roberta. Um, Roberta. I, yeah, thanks, thanks, Glenn. Yeah, actually what I was gonna share is, I think directly responsive to what Blaze read. Um, the whole issue of people wearing masks or not wearing masks right now in the time of COVID, it's, it's a huge issue here in North Carolina. And, um, I, and I was thinking, uh, why rebuke twice? For me, it's a reminder, um, okay, if my goal is actually safety and awareness and creating this collective container, um, there are many ways to rebuke. 
So, you know, rebuke uh, doesn't mean necessarily calling someone out, right? It means calling people in. So, uh, and I've tried many different things in my neighborhood uh, and some successful and some not. And what I finally realized is that just when I wear a mask um, and I move out of the way, that is the form of rebuking that uh, actually works for me. And it's not rebuking the person, you know, it's not demonizing the person. It's, um, it's, it's, uh, and then I, th it's changing the karma, uh, I think. And um, the other thing I wanted to say, uh, everything that you're saying, Jonathan, about um, innocent bystander and intervening and uh, learning skillful means to intervene, um, about, I don't know, 20 years ago or more, the Dalai Lama spoke in Central Park and there were 70,000 people there. And what stayed with me the most was he said, when someone does something that uh, is harmful or disturbing to you, he said, that could be the moment you took birth for, because in that moment, you have the opportunity to change the karma of that harmful action. And I'm seeing to discover that in the Torah is just such a joy for me. So, <laughs> yes, the Dalai Lama is all over the Torah. I know I read them both. <laughs> <laughs> I want to say something about what Roberta just raised, which is part of why, as you might imagine, I was drawn to this verse today, is because that the fact that we're all in this pandemic together means that our um, we're a community whether we like it or not right now. We can't pretend that our actions don't impact everyone around us. And uh, well, we can pretend, but uh, not if we're paying any attention. Now that's true in general, that our actions are always impacting everyone around us. Just like when we diss the waiters and waitresses, uh, which happens, Blaze, I hate to say it, it's, it's, my uh, my daughter's been working as a waitress this last year, and she comes home with astonishing stories of how she's invisible to the people that she's serving. And you know, I, we grew up in a privileged class uh, situation, nice upper middle class, you know, and it's it's a revelation to to see something like that. But now with the virus, um, it becomes visible, and uh, so. Um, how do we think of ourselves as part of a holy community and how do we interact? That's part of the reasons this verse jumped out at me. Who's next, Gwen? I am. Hi. Um, I guess I like the, my thought came to twist around the Haftarayaka Komoka because one of the things I think about is how much do people love themselves. So if you talk about the way our society looks and you know whether you don't like another person, you might be liking that other person just as much as you like yourself. If everybody liked themselves as much as it would be wonderful, we wouldn't need all the psychiatrists and psychologists and lots of other things going around. So part of it, I think, is we have to learn to love ourselves and respect ourselves and then we can love our neighbors as ourselves. Thank you, Gary. Now, I want to point out that Gary's quoting, though he doesn't know it, uh, one of the most famous Talmudic discussions about this commandment, 
where Rabbi Akiva, someone poses to Rabbi Akiva, what is the central principle of the Torah? And he says, clearly love your neighbor as yourself. And then uh, his colleague Ben Azai responds, yes, but what if you don't love yourself? Right, so that is a conversation that's been going on in Jewish circles for over 2000 years. So thank you, Gary. However, and, and Ben Azai says, therefore the key commandment of the Torah is everyone is made in God's image. Because that way, it's not about whether you love yourself, it's about that you are looking at, an, at um, another person who is of infinite value and needs to be treated as such. However, uh, we keep slipping away from the point I made at the beginning, which is that the plain meaning of this phrase in context is how you treat people in a loving way. And you do not have to love yourself to know what the right thing to do is, right? So this isn't about how we feel. This is about having a clear moral center known as the commandments and how we behave towards others in the way we would want them to behave towards us. So I know it's, it's all mixed together uh, because if we don't love ourselves, we might think, well, I should be treated like shit. But um, I wanna go beyond that to um, regardless of how you feel about someone, this is how you are to behave. And I guess the, the reason, um, that one way to understand this is that uh, when, when Jesus is asked what the two central commandments are, um, he says, love God with all your heart, soul, and might, and do unto others as you want them to do unto you. Now, what Jesus is doing is saying, a, he didn't invent that coinage. When you look at other rabbinic literature of that time, love your neighbor as yourself is expressed as do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And why I think that's a really accurate translation is because it's about doing. And so I just wanted to point that out to you. The golden rule, do unto others, that is um, Jesus using a first century Jewish rephrasing of love your neighbor as yourself. Who's next? Carol. Yeah. Um... The, when you talked about the difference between rebuking and scolding, um, the first thing I thought of was the stereotype about Jewish mothers. Because huh. you, you said you can't scold from a loving place. And I think you can certainly think you are scolding from a loving place. Um, you know, I, I could go... I could go into the, it, it is, it's a terrible stereotype, and so I could go that way, but I'm not going to go that way right now. Um, I just want to acknowledge the sensitivity of it, the fine lineness of it, the difficulty of it, that, that each, each and every opportunity has to be handled on its own, certainly with a moral structure around it, but it's not this, this, this stuff is really hard, is really what I want to say. This stuff is really hard. Yes, this is, thank you, Carol. Before we recognize a few other people, and I appreciate you raising your hands, I want to I wanna deepen this from the sources a little bit. 
this is the hardest commandment, maybe. Uh, maybe, maybe after do not covet, <laughs> which is impossible as far as I could tell. Um, but um, so here's a couple of classic teachings to, to put some frame around what you're all saying, which is all in, aligned with it. There was a famous Hasidic disciple of the Baal Shem Tov known as the Mochiach of Polonia. His name was Rabbi Yehuda Aryaleb. And he was known as the Mochiach of Polonia because a Mochiach is someone who rebukes. So he was known as the, rebu the, the rebuker from Polonia. His special sauce was, he, was his way of modeling how to do constructive criticism. So this was his teaching. Uh, he says, the, the first half of the verse establishes the conditions necessary for the second half. Here's the quote. The one who rebukes needs, first of all, to check himself to see if there's any grudge or resentment in his heart, any negative or constricted feeling regarding the person that he is about to rebuke. Only if it is clear to you that you do not hate them in your heart are you then permitted to rebuke. Okay, did you follow that, everybody? Um, it's, it's, it's a high bar. But think about it. Put yourself in the person being rebuked situation. Uh, if that person has resentful, disdaining, negative, nasty energy coming at you with their words, can you receive it? if you're a really big person, maybe. Otherwise, all it does is create resistance. All they're doing is diminishing you. Um, Rabbi Alexander Friedman, uh, who was murdered in the Warsaw Ghetto, taught on this verse in 1941. What is the connection between the two parts of this verse? Do not hate and rebuke. Yes, rebuke. The explanation is that true rebuke is possible only with one whom we love, whose behavior touches our heart and whose path we desire to make better, like a parent who rebukes your own child. To the extent that a person is close to someone, the love is greater and the rebuke is more serious. And the rebuke that comes from love has greater influence. You cannot rebuke one whom you hate. And in any case, the rebuke would have no effect. Only by means of do not hate is it possible to carry out rebuke. Yes, rebuke. So uh, I said rule number one, be clear about your loving intentions. Only then may you proceed. And then you'll still screw up. I know all about it. <laughs> um, the Baal Shem Tov says, and does, there's this great phrase here, lo tisa alav chet, do not bear sin because of him. So again, the plain meaning of the text um, is that um, uh, if you don't intervene, you're partially responsible. The Baal Shem Tov reads it, lo tisa alav, don't place on him your sin and says, one can only give rebuke 
if you're willing to rebuke yourself first, that is, if you recognize that there is within yourself a bit of the other's wrongdoing. Uh, so read it as, don't put all the sin on them. So again, that's a high level of awareness. Uh, for me, honestly, it most of this happens in the car. Uh, I, it's like, I'm hating the other drivers. I'm chewing them out. I do this like as almost a reflex. I really work at this. And then I make a mistake. Like I've drifted across the line or I forgot to do this. I go, oh no, now they're going to be saying that about me. So all I know is when it comes to driving, I'm definitely partly guilty. <laughs> and I try to temper what I'm doing that I learned at my father's knee, you know, uh, to the other drivers. Um, I'm going to share a couple more teachings. So rule number two is examine yourself for the same negative qualities or actions that you find yourself wishing to rebuke in others and be humble and not self-righteous in your efforts. Now, um, the Rambam, and I really like this one. I did a lot of reading about this this morning. The Rambam's in 12th century Egypt and uh, wrote a gigantic compendium of Jewish law and practice. And he spends a lot of time on how to rebuke. Um, and uh, let's see, I just want to find the right quote for you. Here it is. The Rambam, following an incredibly important and, and big discussion in the Talmud, says that if you rebuke someone, you may not do it in a way that shames them or humiliates them. And then he goes into great length for how to do that, how to do it in private rather than in public. Um, and um, he reads the, you do not, that you not bear sin because of him as, um, excuse me for a second. I want to find this quote. I really liked it. Uh, oh, that if you rebuke someone in a way that shames them, you have sinned. And you're bearing a sin because of him, but not because of him, but because of the way you treated him. So that's another reading on this verse, that uh, you must um, rebuke someone in a way that doesn't make them feel ashamed or humiliated. And this, of course, means choosing your words, your tone, and the timing of your delivery so as to do your best to avoid shaming or humiliating the person you are trying to assist with your intervention. <sighs> now, Rabbi Akiva, who said, love your neighbors yourself is the central commandment, also said, in my generation, there is no one who even knows how to, a rebuke ought to be worded. 
which is to say, how do we do this? If we're angry all the time, if we're, if, if, if we're constantly trying to think about what we should say to this person about their behavior, uh, is there any way to offer a rebuke that is uh, thoughtful and loving? And I know that uh, the reason Rabbi Akiva says that, just to remind us that we're, this is a very, very, as Carol said, incredibly challenging commandment to fulfill. I read a contemporary rabbi who said that, um, was playing on the word hochiach and tocheach, tocheach and hochiach. If you look at the Hebrew, you can see the letters kaf chet in there, koach, strength. So lehochiach can be read as to give strength to, which is a beautiful reading. That this act of constructive criticism is in order to strengthen someone. And this rabbi was just reading, was saying that don't we long on some level for somebody to point out where we're stuck? Um, we may not be willing to receive that, but I think that almost every person of conscience is hoping that their true friends will figure out how to point out their blind spots to them. I know that's what I want. And when my wife does it, I get very defensive. And then I have to like go, oh, Okay, okay. I don't want to be behaving this way. I don't want to simply get my guard up and defend myself and be self-righteous. I want this. So I just wanted to point out that that beautiful teaching, that this can also be a way of showing, giving each other strength. And I also want to point out one of the most famous examples in the, that's used for tochecha, for this rebuking, is between Abraham and God. When God says, I'm going to destroy everyone in Sodom, and Abraham steps forward and says, should the, should, uh, no, well, first God says, should I hide from my beloved Abraham what I'm doing? And then he tells Abraham that he's going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And I always read that as God looking for an intervention. And Abraham, right up to the Kaddish Baruch right up to God, steps up and says, will not the uh, judge of all the world do justly? What if you wipe away the innocent along with the guilty? And what Abraham's doing is reminding God of God's true nature. That's what we're doing, hopefully, when we're intervening is that we're not intervening because that person's a schmuck. We're intervening because we know that person is a beautiful soul. And we're seeing that and not wanting that person to continue to um, behave in a way that's not aligned with their, their best self. But we're doing that because we see who they are. Abraham sees who God is and then intervenes and gets in God's face uh, to remind God of God's essential nature. And again, I'm not making a theological statement about God's essential nature here. I'm talking about the characters in this story that in the Torah, even God needs help sometimes because God gets carried away by God's own self-righteousness and anger. 
Um, I have so much fun reading and reading about this, and I hope you don't mind me um, going on and on about it. But I, I want to say that I'd say rule number four that I came up with is that love demands that we find a way to intervene. So my friends, we still have a few minutes and people have been patient. If your hand raised is still relevant, um, uh, I'd welcome Gwen uh, recognizing. Okay, Diana's next. Uh, my, my concern, uh, my question is about how this relates to forgiveness. When somebody has uh, really wronged you in some way, yes. and you want to forgive and you want to uh, love, and I understand it's about behavior, not feeling. Um, any insights you have onto this forgiveness problem, I would like to hear. Yes, I actually want to quote uh, one of these fine teachers I was reading who talked about that. Let me just scan this text for just a moment because it was so clear. Um, it's, yeah, it's the Rambam who, who uh, brings it up. Let me just see if I can find it. Uh, what if someone sinned against you personally? Um, and uh, uh, the Rambam's take on that is, if someone sinned against you personally, you really have to be careful and, and be, be extremely gentle in your rebuke so that you're making certain you're not just coming to him in order to chew him out. That's the way, that's not how Rambam said it, but that's how this author uh, said it. Um, Diane, I, I can't find the source I was looking for. That's an excellent question. And part of the, part of the incredibly uh, sort of delicate um, um, uh, uh, chemistry of figuring out how to talk to someone. So if you can say to them, you really hurt me, um, and your goal is to reconcile, that doesn't mean it can't be accompanied by anger and tears. Uh, but I think it has to do with, now, a lot of the time when something bad happens to me personally from somebody small or I can let it go. I can say, oh, they're having a bad day and it washes away. And then sometimes it sticks, right? And you, yep. find, yourself, and you find yourself stewing over it. You and sometimes forgiveness is not about wanting to reconcile, but it's about wanting to let it go for one's own sake. That's right. That's right. You want to let it go. But what if you can't let it go? There's no reason to rebuke somebody over everything. We all, we're all constantly transgressing all the time. And you just, we, we, if we're in a good space, we brush it off. But then if we're not careful, we notice that it's building up. And if it's someone whom we are in a holy relationship with, and not somebody we can just sort of like put on our social face and smile and wave, um, uh, but if it's just damaging the intimacy of our relationship, we have to find a way to let them know. And so I think all the guidelines remain the same. Are you doing it out of a place of self-righteousness or are you doing it out of a place of wanting loving connection to be restored? All right, where are you coming from? 
And if you can be coming from that place, these constructive criticism conversations are very challenging, right? Because you're bearing your soul, you're sharing your feelings, the emotions come along with them. So it, you really have, one really has to know that it's in the container of a holy relationship, that the goal is to create a space of holiness, not a space of destruction, self-righteousness, or rage. The space of holiness can contain the rage and the hurt, but the rage and the hurt without the intention for holiness will just be destructive. It makes me think of when I do weddings, the Hebrew word for marriage is kiddushin, which means sacred, holiness, right? There's that word kadosh again. And so I've thought about it a lot um, and tried to work on it in my own marriage that what is my intention? This marriage is supposed to be a holy community. How do I get through all of my confusion, resentments, frustrations? Which can I let go? Which can I put on the shelf? Which must I talk about? And I have to constantly be discerning this, but it's always within the context of wanting to restore a sense of holiness. Um, and again, you know, what's a good grade? 65 maybe passing? <laughs> it's like, we're not going for 100 here. But if the context is not holiness, then the rage and resentment and self-righteousness will just be, um, will just eat away at any container and contempt will replace love. Um, and um, I love that you came to class so that I could say that out loud because I'm constantly talking to myself especially right now when we're spending so much time together, right? <sighs> Unless, well, if we're with our families or if we're alone, I hope you're spending plenty of time together in other ways with people who love you. There were some beautiful comments that I didn't get to read and I thank you. Um, and I'm sorry that I couldn't recognize the folks who raised their hands. I think now that we're getting the hang of this, at first I thought an hour would be like impossible to manage. And now I, tr I hope and trust that you feel still engaged and attentive, um, even as we've reached the hour that we scheduled for this. I think I'll talk more about it on Shabbat in some context or other. <laughs>